Let me pray for us. Lord, we do ask that you would help us now to rest in the righteousness of Christ alone for our standing with you, that you would grant us to trust in your sovereign control over all of history, and that we would give you the offerings of thanksgiving that you rightfully deserve. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our verse for meditation tonight comes from 1 Timothy. We're going to be in 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. So I invite you to flip over to 1 Timothy 4 with me, and I'll read the first five verses, that little paragraph. So 1 Timothy 4, you guys can turn there while I read verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer." So our verse for tonight, verse 4, is a verse about food. Chew and swallow. Pot roast, pulled pork, mashed potatoes, food. It's a very down-to-earth verse in that sense. We're not talking about food as a metaphor, like spiritual food. This verse is talking about food food. And the verdict about food? Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Amen. Let's go home. Easiest application ever. I mean, it's a very straightforward verse. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected. I mean, sure, you can twist it. You can twist any verse of Scripture. But by and large, this is not one of those verses where the meaning is mysterious. I don't think Peter had this verse in mind when he said, oh, some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. Now, I I need to start with a, a big disclaimer for the rest of the message. Some of you may be thinking, I don't know if some of you are thinking, I forgive you if you were. I was thinking, this sounds a little bit self-serving coming from you. I've been out to dinner with you. You really like to eat. Are you, are you, Jeremiah, are you just preaching this because you like to eat? You should have seen how many sausages this guy ate at youth retreat breakfast. Like, it's, it seems self-serving. I, I, I hear you. To be fair, I did not pick this verse. Pastor Paul assigned me this verse. And, and when, when he did and when I read it, it was the very first time. I've been befuddled by texts. I've thought some were difficult, but this was the very, very first time that Paul signed me a text, and I thought, you've got the wrong guy. You, you, you need to pick a skinny guy. Samuel <laughs> needs to preach this text. So I, I, I get that, but to be fair again, I didn't write this text. Apostle Paul wrote this text, and we know. We know about the sin of gluttony and self-indulgence, right? We know there is such a thing as eating too much, There is such a thing as sinning by eating. And we know that Paul the Apostle knows about the dangers of food and pleasure. In fact, in a parallel passage about false teachers in the last days, in 2 Timothy, Paul warns against those who, among other things, have no self-control and are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So obviously, nothing Paul is saying in our verse can be rightly taken to contradict that. You cannot use 1 Timothy 4.4 to... uh, Defend gluttonous, fleshly indulgence. If if you struggle with gluttony, this is not meant to absolve you of that. Gluttony is a sin. We're not denying that tonight. 
Nothing in our verse undermines the sin of gluttony. So that's, that's the disclaimer for the message. Because though gluttony to sin is a real-life possibility, Paul still says in our verse, everything created by God is good. Talking about food. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So we're going to meditate on our verse by asking, why is Paul telling us this? We're going to ask that question. Why is he saying this? Food is good. Nothing is to be rejected. Awesome. But, but why is Paul mentioning this? And in the process of answering that question, we'll engage in three sub-meditations. But we'll, we'll get there in a moment. Let's start at the beginning by asking, why, why is Paul telling this? We note that this verse is related to the little paragraph here at the beginning of chapter 4. Our verse is verse 4, but in your ESV it starts with the word for, F-O-R, or because. Our verse says, because everything created by God is good. So our verse is a reason. It is a reason for something. Paul is backing up something he either said or is about to say. So what is this verse a reason for? What is the simple truth that, God, that everything created by God, particularly food, is good, and nothing is to be rejected, what is that grounding in Paul's argument? Why does he bring it up? In context, Paul is refuting false teachers who require abstinence from certain foods. And he mentions two things that characterize these teachers. They forbid marriage, they require abstinence from foods. And in the, fa- in the passage, food is what's prominent, both grammatically and in, in the content. And notice, Paul does not mention which foods. It's possible that he's addressing Judaizers who would have been arguing for probably keeping kosher. However, how marriage fits into that is not clear. Judaizers in general didn't forbid marriage. It's probably intentional that Paul does not give any concrete clues to which foods he has in mind. His words are intentionally generic and can apply to any similar situation. Asceticism, religious asceticism, the denial of earthly pleasures for the sake of a higher spirituality is a tendency found in many, many religious systems, even contemporary with Paul. Besides the Judaizers, there were all sorts of Roman and Greek groups that had very strict religious diets. So Paul's probably intentionally vague. His words apply to any sort of specialized, restrictive diet. Paul's responding to the claim, the idea that requiring abstinence from certain foods is necessary And he says, this isn't true. He says in verse 3, the very food that they are requiring abstinence from was created by God to be received, to be partaken of, to be eaten with thanksgiving. And Paul grounds this truth that food was made to be eaten with the beginning of our verse, echoing Genesis. We know that God made food to be eaten with thanksgiving because for God created it and everything God created is good. Therefore, food is good. That's, That's the logic of the paragraph. And the second half of verse 4 both restates and expands that idea from verse 3. Not just some foods, all foods. Everything is created by God. Therefore, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So you get this kind of sandwich in verses 3 through 4. God created this food they are banning to be received with thanksgiving. We know this because God created everything good. And therefore, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Again, it's a simple idea. Makes sense. Food was made to be eaten. So stop overanalyzing your life and, and get to eating. Yet look what, what Paul is speaking into. Look, look what he says this to. Right? This, this isn't just a minor confusion Paul is correcting. He writes, verse 4, to combat people who were, in his own words, leaving the faith, following after the teaching of deceitful spirits and demons, being insincere or hypocritical, liars, with seared consciences, 
That's, that's pretty harsh. But that's what verse 4 is speaking into, which raises the question that will guide the rest of our time. If Paul writes, verse 4, to combat these false teachers who were requiring abstinence from certain foods, and these false teachers were following after the teachings of demons, why would the demons care about your diet? Specifically, why would demons want you to avoid certain foods? What do demons gain by making you not eat meat or pork or gluten or fat or sugar? What interest does a demon have in your diet? I mean, we know about gluttony. That one makes sense. Satan would love for you to love food more than you love God. He would love for you to live for your belly. That strategy makes sense. It's a great strategy. It's a highly effective strategy. We know this if we're honest with ourselves. We don't even have to look out into the world. We don't have to make condemning commentary on the indulgent state of Western culture or the obesity epidemic in America. All we have to do is look inward to see that making us lovers of pleasure, lovers of food and self-indulgence, is a powerful strategy to lead people astray. So, so doesn't restricting certain foods and pleasure seems like it would go against that effective strategy? If gluttony is such a profitable de- demonic business... Why then would Satan also be in the business of keeping people from food? I think there are at least three answers to this question. And these three answers will be what the rest of we spend, the, will be how we spend the rest of our time. Why would Satan be in the business of keeping people from food? Three answers. The first reason is that Satan wants you to find righteousness in anything other than Jesus Christ. Despite the gift of salvation offered to us in Christ, despite the wonder of justification and righteousness given to us that is not our own, counted to us as grace, it is one of the flaws of our sinful nature that we want to stand on our own two feet before God and men. People would much rather find righteousness in themselves, in something they can control. It's the classic blunder of humanity. We want to be responsible for our own standing before God. However, we all have a problem. In our sinfulness, we cannot measure up to his goodness, to his righteousness, to his wonderful standards. So we create our own, and then we try to master them. We impose our own standards on ourselves and others in order to feel righteous. We create sources of self-righteousness. Now, usually... Our created standards don't even work to make us righteous, even if you only go by them, right? There's a reason our paragraph mentions insincerity of liars. He means that these people are hypocritical. In other words, usually they aren't righteous even by their own standards. We usually aren't righteous even by the standards that we make up. We just like to heap burdens on others. But even if we could be righteous by our own standards, that is still not righteousness before God. And food and diet is one of those areas that men throughout all of history have been prone to make a false standard of righteousness. Whether it's framed directly as a religious moral issue, like, do you eat kosher? Do you eat meat? It's it's wrong to eat meat. How could you do that? That's a living creature. How could you commit that moral wrong? Or whether it's framed indirectly religious by being about something like good stewardship. Oh, you eat donuts? I mean, okay, I personally don't eat donuts because, you know, I believe my body is a temple and I would never put refined sugar into it, but you do you. (laughs) Throughout history, men have often been tempted to make diet a false standard of righteousness. Why is that? 
Why would food be something ripe for self-righteousness and legalism? I imagine simply because eating and diet are one of those really obvious, visible features of life. Everyone eats. You have to. It's part and parcel of everyday life, and it's something that can make you distinctive. Ooh, I would never eat that. Ooh, you put that in your body. You know, I read a study that says, but I guess you didn't get the memo. It's convenient to be legalistic about food, just like it's convenient to be legalistic about fashion, another area where we're prone to that weakness. So Satan would love for you to be trusting your diet and whatever other related issues or self-standards of righteousness you've created for your standing with God. And we might be quick to say, well, I'm not going that far. And maybe we would never say the words, I am trusting this for my standing with God. But if this is what makes me most happy with myself, gives me the most joy in how I'm doing in life, what makes me most at peace, what assuages my conscience in the quiet moments, then maybe we're doing exactly that even if we don't say it. We may be trusting our diet for our standing with God. It is never going to work. Let go of hoping in your food righteousness and instead put all your trust and faith in the righteousness of Christ, gifted to you freely if you believe in him. In Christ, you are forgiven for all your sins and you can stand before God and you need no other plea. Let Christ's righteousness be your comfort. Let Christ's righteousness make you feel at peace. Let Christ's righteousness be what assuages your conscience, what gives you joy in how you're doing in life. Reason number two. Reason number two that Satan would want you abstaining from foods is that he wants you to find safety in something other than Jesus and his plan for history. Satan would love for you to find your security, your comfort from your fears in a magic diet that is going to keep you from getting sick and make you live forever. He would love for you to believe that if you just eat right, all would be well. And so you better obsess over and devote your life to eating well. The, the fact of the matter is the world is scary and sickness is hard. You know, the last time I got a sore throat, I thought I was going to die. And the pain and the duration were so excruciating that to this day, my body starts to shake whenever I feel a little hoarse. The fear of that happening again has a physical effect on me. And if you told me there was a certain food that I could eat or could avoid to guarantee my safety from that, that would have real appeal. When you're young and you feel invincible, as the stereotype goes, maybe this isn't so tempting. But as you begin to experience the uncertainties and the fears of health, it becomes much more understandable to want to find safety and security in something you can control. I can control my diet. But that control is just an illusion. Hopefully, Ecclesiastes has made that point, even though it hasn't specifically addressed diet as such in these categories. But it happens to the righteous as to the wicked. It happens to the wise as to the fool. It happens to the healthy eater as to the glutton. The world is absurd. Skinny athletic people get diabetes. Healthy athletes get cancer and die before they're 40. Morbidly obese people live to their 90s. You, you, you could build a time machine. You could travel to the future, read all the nutritional research from a thousand years from now, resolve to only eat the healthiest foods as discerned by a thousand years of scientific progress, and then get hit by a drunk driver tomorrow. Your diet is something that Satan can use to make you think that you are the master of your destiny. You are not the master of your destiny. You are not the master of your health. You are going to die. 
Again, this, this doesn't mean being reckless, but it does mean recognizing that eating bread or sugar or meat isn't reckless in and of itself because you cannot eat yourself to immortality. The reason why you cannot eat yourself to perfect health is because the world is bent. As we've learned, God bent it. The impossibility of successfully navigating the nutritional landscape of life is a punishment for our sin, but a gracious one, meant to lead us to throw ourselves on God in faith. Tragedies of this world, the unintelligible ways food and nutrition often work, the reason why sometimes healthy people get cancer and obese people live to their 90s is to teach us that we are not masters of our destiny. The perplexities of health are to get us to despair of finding security in anything other than the one who is the master of your destiny. Jesus has a plan for history and this world, and it is often unintelligible to us. But we can trust him because he is good and he is loving and he is working all things together for good for his people. So stop trying to find safety and security in your diet. Start finding your safety and security in the fact that Jesus is running this world. He's got this. Reason number three. Reason number three, Satan would want to keep people from food. Satan would love for us to miss out on God's goodness to us and therefore rob God of worship. You notice I kind of crammed two in here because I was running out of space as I wrote this. So I cheated. It's all right. Our verse says that God created everything good. That's the character of God. That's the graciousness of God. God likes making good things that delight his creation. God delights in doing delightful things. Satan would love you to lose out on experiencing a piece of God's goodness to you. Getting to eat a donut in humility because you don't actually know how and when you are going to die is one of the ways that God is kind to you. Have a donut. Well, if, I eat, if I eat that donut, I might die. I didn't make the donut to keep you alive. I made it to make you smile. You let me worry, worry about keeping you alive and killing you because I will do both in my time. And you don't have anything to prove to me or worry about regarding your death because I sent my son to die for you. My love for you is secure and all-powerful. And the death of my saints is precious in my sight. So you leave those things to me and you enjoy my gifts in the meantime. Since you aren't master of your destiny, enjoy this good gift. That's Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 10. Satan would rather you believe God is not good, and keeping good things that God has gifted to you can be a way for him to start that thought in your mind, to sow that rejection of God in your heart. Satan would love for you to grow so weary of this world that you abandon the faith or become a miserable witness that communicates to the watching world, God isn't good. And one of the ways he can do this or begin to do this is by teaching you to reject what God has created for you in order to cut you off from some of God's sustaining mercies and occasions for thankfulness. Listen, food is not a means of grace. Don't, don't hear me saying that. Eating a good meal is not going to sustain your spirit for fighting the good fight. But just because a good meal is a temporal gift, not an eternal one, doesn't mean it isn't a gift from God. Enjoying God's temporal gifts is our lot in this absurd, unintelligible life. And to be able to enjoy them is itself a gift from God. We should not reject them out of a misplaced sense of righteousness or safety, especially since this robs God of an occasion for worship. The back half of our verse says nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Meaning there is a condition for the real goodness of food to be on display, to be experienced. 
For food to be good and all its goodness, it has to be eaten in gratitude. It has to involve giving thanks. Thanks to whom? Thanks to the one who made it and gifted it to you. Satan would love to rob God of thanks he is rightly owed. God is owed worship for all his wonders and mercies, for his saving grace and for his common grace, for his eternal blessings and his temporal ones. Yes, we must never mix the two, those two categories. But to deny the temporal because of the eternal or to deny the common because of the saving would be to make a serious error, not least of which because it robs God of thanks that he is owed. If you have friends over, and you work really hard to make a nice dessert or, or like an appetizer for them, and then they reject it, it stings a little. Right? Sure, the primary reason you had them over wasn't to feed them that food item. It was for fellowship. It was for growth in the friendship, supporting each other, catching up, etc., etc. But still, you wanted to provide a good that was rejected. Don't, don't you like it when your house guests happily devour the treats you prepared and there's not a crumb left and they sit back in their chair going, oh, that was so good. It delights you, doesn't it? It makes you feel appreciated. It feels good. And it gives you glory as a good host or hostess. When people say, oh, thanks, but no thanks, that's really just no thanks. No gratitude. No glory for you. You actually did a bad job. I don't want it. No thanks. Literally. Listen, one of the reasons you should eat a donut now and again is because God deserves to be thanked for that donut. Don't be the ungrateful house guest. This creation is God's house. Don't refuse the treats. Yes, they aren't the point of this life, but he still made them and set them out for you. Jesus has provided for a perfect righteousness in him, and he is running this world. You don't need to find righteousness or security in anything else. So enjoy all of Jesus' kindness to you with gratitude, glorifying him as their creator. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for all that you are to us in Christ. We thank you for the salvation that we have. We thank you that we have a perfect righteousness and so that we do not need to despair of how we stand before you. We thank you that you run the world even as it scares us and is often unintelligible to us. And we thank you that you delight to give us good things, even temporal, silly good things along the way. May all these things be an occasion to worship you, to give you praise and thanks that you are rightfully owed. And may we never be tricked into trusting in particularly our diet or trying to find our safety in our diet. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.